0: Welcome to Sanity, a podcast to help you keep yours in today's divisive political climate. I'm your host, Audrey Scagnelli, and I hope you'll join me in this quest for optimism in a post-2016 world. Today I'm joined by the Executive Director of Heterodox Academy, Deb Mashek. Heterodox is an organization that has been on my radar since its start in 2015. It's a nonpartisan group of over 2,500 professors, administrators, and graduate students, and all of their members are working to promote open inquiry, viewpoint diversity, and disagreement in the classroom that is constructive. So Deb, I wish this existed when I was in college. You've recently taken the helm, and I'm so excited to talk with you today about Your work both at Heterodox and before that as well. Well, it is a pleasure to be here, Audrey.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: To get started, could you just talk a little bit about your background? You have a PhD in health psychology, and you were a college professor at Harvey Mudd for 13 plus years.
1: Yeah, my PhD is in social and health psychology, and my area of expertise is in the psychology of close relationships. So one of the most popular courses I ever taught was on psychology of close relationships, which was about hooking up, breaking up, and everything in between. So exactly the kind of thing that you can imagine a college student might be interested in hearing about. And then later, I started applying close relationships theory to community building and also to institutional collaboration. So a lot of warm, fuzzy, interpersonal work with a strong applied focus. And I spent the past 14 years as a professor of psychology at Harvey Mudd College. It's one of the Claremont colleges there in Claremont, California, and have now resigned from that position to become lead Heterodox Academy.
0: Before we dive into Heterodox, there was a class that you taught. I love the name of it. I'm right. You're wrong.
1: Yes. So the origin story of that class, it was right around the 2016 election where we were supposed to submit which courses we would like to teach for the following semester. So this was fall 2016. So thinking about the spring 2017 semester and a lot of college campuses, a lot of people went into a sense of mourning and shock and surprise and kind of shutting down and feeling like oh gosh, how, how could this election actually have turned out like this? And it felt like a surprise. And so for whatever reason, I had an inspiration the next day that I should teach this course on I'm Right, You're Wrong and try to help my students think about how other reasonable people might see the world differently and the value of empathy and perspective taking um, when we're trying to understand the Of the world. So that was the impetus for this course. It was a first year writing course. So these are all first year students. And we read Jonathan Heights' The Righteous Mind and also Thomas Sowell's Conflict of Visions. So those were our two primary texts that we worked with to try to understand different worldviews and how how people from varied perspectives see the world differently.
0: remember distinctly that there were quite a few exams that were postponed as a result of the result of the election part of me with my own bias working for republican candidates though not being involved in the winner's campaign felt like my goodness if it was the other way around hard for me to picture exams being postponed
1: <laughs> yeah and I, we saw a lot of college presidents, for instance, issuing letters to their communities shortly after the election, um, encouraging people to take care of each other, which is a really lovely thing, of course, but I, I had the same question is like, oh, oh, goodness had the election turned out differently, what letters have also been issued? And if not, what is that communicating about the values of the campus? But more importantly, for me, the extent to which everybody on the campus is actually considered a member of the community. So who's in and who's out and who are we um, truly welcoming?
0: Yes. Yes. Because I think rising tides raise all boats and lift all boats. And I think that the spirit of heterodox is very much in up with that. And Jonathan Haidt, of course, is one of the co-founders of the organization. He's a well-known scholar at NYU. Could you share with us a little bit about what is Heterodox? How did it come to be? And how is it working to create more diversity of thought on campuses across the country?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, it's a mouthful of a name um, (laughs) people struggle with. So I'm just going to break that down for a moment. So the notion of heterodoxy stands in contrast to the idea of orthodoxy, that there's one right way to be thinking about the world, that there's one set of questions we're allowed to ask, one set of answers we're allowed to offer. So at Heterodox Academy, we think that at the very core of higher education is the idea that ideas should be colliding together, that iron sharpens iron, that it's through interrogating ideas and complexities alongside people who see things differently that we're actually able to come closer to an understanding of reality or of truth. So it's not that I'm excited to learn, or, or it's not just that I'll tolerate you as a learning partner, but I'm actually excited to learn alongside of you because you see things differently, because you have a vantage point on this issue we're trying to understand together that My own biases limit me from seeing whatever the angle is that you have on it. So if we can co-inquire, we're both going to develop a deeper understanding. So that's the idea of heterodoxy. Heterodox Academy has its origins in 2015. So it started, I call it the three guys in a blog um, narrative. So so Jonathan Haidt, like you mentioned, Chris Martin, and also Nick Rosencrantz. So they were um, coming from three different disciplines, three different scholars, all recognizing that within their own fields, there were some constraints in terms of the kind of scholarship that was was getting created and they decided to start writing about this and thinking about this publicly. They launched this blog, heterodoxacademy.org. Shortly thereafter, all these other scholars started coming out of the woodwork saying, hey, we're worried about this too. Can we join this effort? At that point, it pivoted into being a bit of a membership organization, like you could actually sign on to a statement. It started as professors who were post-tenure because it was Mm -hmm. perceived as somehow being risky to come out on the side of open inquiry. Later, it was opened to pre-tenure professors and then... professors regardless of contract status meaning you could be an adjunct professor or whatnot and now membership also includes um, professional affiliates so there are so many people on a college campus who are contributing to the curricular and co-curricular missions of the colleges that to only limit this interest and this movement to professors was itself fairly exclusionary (laughs) so now you know there are staff members as well as graduate students too who are, are part of this because they are tomorrow's professors and so making sure we're all thinking together about the habits of heart and mind that really allow for this constructive engagement across differences. And you asked, what do we actually do? How are we doing the work, we really see four bins of activity. One is we try to increase public awareness about why open inquiry matters for the university. So to this end, you know we have our podcast, which is Half Hour of Heterodoxy, Everyone Can Subscribe. And we write op-eds and we have the blog, that sort of work. And the second bin is really around creating tools and resources that professors, administrators, and others can deploy within their local context to get an understanding of if there are concerns, but also then how to fix them. Our third effort focuses on finding the institutions that are doing really clever things in this difficult space and trying to elevate them and make those models visible for others who might want to come along that same pathway. And then the fourth one focuses on creating communities of practice. So there might be you know, one or two professors at this school who are, are worried about it and thinking about it, and one or two over there. And we try to connect them for everything from research collaborations, um, conferences, disciplinary discussions... That's our big thumbnail sketch of what we're up to.
0: It's great work. And really, in learning more about heterodox, I started to reflect a little bit on some experiences that I had in college classrooms. And one in particular really stands out. Do you share it? Yes. Yes, excellent. I was a freshman a few weeks into school, and uh, we were talking about September 11th. The professor was a fairly left-leaning person, and we were sitting in a a large circle in having a discussion. And I made a small comment about President Bush and unity, and it wasn't long, and my style is not bombastic, as anyone who's listening to this podcast knows. I'm kind of getting that read on you here, Audrey. (laughs) My goodness, I was 18, and I certainly wasn't looking to pick a fight. And wow, it was horrible, the reaction from the professor. And I just, I mean, I really didn't even realize what I was walking into. You know, maybe that's in part awareness, right? I I did learn a lot from that experience. But unfortunately, what that taught me is in line with some results that you have from from a campus expression survey, which looked at students and willingness and interest and ability to speak out in classrooms. And for me, that life lesson in that specific class was there are going to be certain classrooms I'm going to be in where I'm better off staying quiet, keeping my thoughts to myself and expressing them because perhaps it's gonna affect the grade, perhaps I'm gonna get into fights that I'm really not looking to get into. Now, I went to school in DC. I was very comfortable talking about politics in certain classrooms. Didn't matter if the professor was conservative or liberal, but they appreciated debate, but not everybody does. I would love to ask you a little bit about that survey. It found that 53% of students that were surveyed did not think their university frequently encourages students to consider a wide array of viewpoints, and that there's a disproportionate reaction, 32% of conservatives were reluctant to discuss politics in the classroom versus 8% of liberals. How have you taken this kind of research and, and worked towards moving the needle and improving some of these kind of disappointing um, outcomes? unfortunately your story
1: is not rare so we keep hearing anecdote after anecdote of students electing to sit on the sideline of their their own learning like that this notion that there are risks so we choose to self-censor and the data you're talking about are from our campus expression survey so we think about it as a bit of a an x-ray so you can administer it to a given classroom or a given campus we actually have a national sample now um, that we're getting ready to publish with 1500 students who who are current college students but the answers that question, who is afraid to speak out or to engage which topics and why? So what sort of consequences are people worried about? And one of the big results that you touched on here is that the pattern is really consistent that for our moderate and conservative students, they're expressing a lot more hesitation than our, our liberal students. And ideally, as an educator, ideally, our goal is that everyone's able to, to bring themselves into the classroom and to discuss ideas and to play around with ideas. And one of the things that having spent a lot of years in the classroom that I keep thinking about is we are talking about 18-year-olds. I'm 44. I don't know what I think about a whole bunch of things in the world. And the idea that I might be somehow communicating to my students that as 18-year-olds, they should have it all figured out worries me. It's like, why bother? (laughs) And I mean, and then you would go on to the, the other topic there. of How can we possibly all digest enough information to have such strong opinions on so many things? Like I don't have enough hours in the day, so I'm not sure where that's coming from. Um, But one of the things you know, I want my nine-year-old son, my 19-year-old student, and my 90-year-old colleagues to be thinking about is that it's okay for us to say, I don't know, that um, one of the ways we learn about what we think is through trying out ideas in conversation. And so finding ways of doing that that are low risk and that we're allowed to be wrong and that we're not going to get in the case that you shared, or if you share a different perspective that you're going to get swarmed as opposed to welcomed into the conversation.
0: Yeah, it's, you have said this before, but if you are ill and you are seeking a diagnosis and the diagnosis is incorrect, you get to the bottom of it, you get a new diagnosis, and hopefully you, know, you, you get cured. In politics, and this bleeds into college classrooms too, we penalize people for becoming more informed and then changing their mind because they've become more informed. And to have this expectation of being 18 and feeling like you need to have it all figured out with vast amount of information, there's so much information overload right now, it's really worrisome. We have an average of six minute attention spans and it's worse and worse and worse the younger younger you get. What kind of actionable things has Heterodox found that can tackle some of these really pressing problems that extend even beyond the classroom?
1: One of the things that's really clear is that dropping in how should I say this? So it takes practice and it's hard. And so from a pedagogical sense or from a student development sense, we need to be introducing some of these habits of heart and mind early and then actually offering students the opportunity to practice. So some of the concrete things that we've seen work well on campuses include during the first year orientation sessions. So while we're talking about where the library is and how to go get you know, your swipe card so you can go through the, the lunch line and whatnot, but also talking about the role of whether it's academic freedom or open inquiry within the academy and within um, knowledge creation spaces, that that kind of sets the tone right from the beginning that this stuff matters here within our community and that we're all talking about it, we're all valuing it. We've seen entire courses popping up talking about the role of open inquiry and why it's so hard and how we can construct learning experiences to overcome our individual biases. But that, from an institutional perspective, is a huge lift um, to offer entire courses on things like that. But then there are these smaller things like having speaker series, for instance, where people from um, different vantage points come together, not to debate and figure out who's right and who's wrong and figure out who's going to score points and win, but really to think together from our different perspectives, if we truly want to solve something. So, you know, pick an issue you're concerned about, maybe solving poverty, and that if we really, really care about this, and we really want to help the world, how can we find the best ideas, regardless of which ideological bins they come from, and put those together in a meaningful way to actually go out and create change. And I think we need to be modeling that for the students. And then in an individual classroom, so whatever the topic, whether it's like, you know, a psychology course or a communications course, finding ways of signaling in the syllabus language, frankly, that all viewpoints are welcomed here. It doesn't mean that they're going to be um, accepted. They're all going to be interrogated, but we're not going to, you know, be jerks to each other. We're going to do it with open hearts and open minds is one of the things a professor can do to start helping set the tone. And then thinking about when we're curating our reading list for a course, that there, there's a tendency to one to present readings that align with our own is just those are the readings we remember those are the readings that have influenced us so as professors when we're constructing our courses and um, there's a tendency sometimes for for the readings themselves to be fairly ideologically constrained or theoretically constrained or disciplinarily constrained it makes sense given so many courses are disciplinarily based but looking for opportunities of opening that and then also um, when we create assignments finding ways of signaling to students, like, you're not going to be evaluated on your perspective, you're going to be evaluated on your ability to launch argument and to use evidence and to engage in analysis that's compelling. So working to be mindful of our own biases as professors and insulating students from those so that they can really explore what they think by us making room to teach them how to think as opposed Mm -hmm. to what to think.
0: A lot of this conversation is reminding me of an episode that Katie Couric did in her series America Inside Out. And she interviewed both the president of Northwestern University and of the University of Chicago. And Northwestern University is an example of a university that pushes forward this idea of safe spaces and not wanting to have triggers And University of Chicago, historically and and today, is is a university that pushes forward the idea of having disagreement and kind of in line with with some of this conversation, that when you're willing to have a real... Disagreement, you can you can actually result in something more positive. So I'm a little biased here. I think it's probably clear where I where I personally feel more comfortable in in a learning environment. But I worry a little bit that if we become so obsessed with safe spaces, and there's a an, an anecdote that you shared with the Wall Street Journal about a student you were advising who used the expression "I could kill two birds you know with with one stone," yeah. but he stopped himself because he said he didn't want to offend you because it was a violent statement. So. Yeah. You know, for me, I mean, there's there's a line and it really is important that we start thinking about having multiple perspectives, multiple groups feel comfortable and safe and willing to speak about something. But when you become more, you know, where's that tension? I know that's a big question, but.
1: Yeah. So some thoughts on it. One of the things that that anecdote that I shared with The Wall Street Journal highlights, as well as in so many of these other conversations about how we are creating our learning spaces is an incredibly genuine concern for the well-being of others and for wanting to create spaces that are diverse and inclusive where everybody can feel a sense of belonging. And that to me is a very noble goal. It's absolutely something we should be working toward. Um, For me, one of the concerns is that I feel in a lot of the the conversation um, is that there's been a conflation of this idea of being uncomfortable with being unsafe when really those those are, are different ideas Personally, I don't think learning can take place in the absence of discomfort and challenge. If I'm not challenging your worldview, if I'm not helping you think differently about the world, then I'm I'm not doing my job as a teacher. That said, if our learning spaces have become so uncomfortable that we're moving from productive struggle over into the space of unnecessary suffering, learning also ceases. And so one of the things when we're designing our campuses and our classrooms that we have to be very, very mindful of is that that discomfort is not equally distributed across all students or across all topics, that there are some topics that are really really hard to talk about. So for instance when I was teaching that psychology of close relationships class, when we would talk about sexual assault, that's a really difficult topic for many students and especially difficult for students who have gone through assault experiences as survivors. And it's also true that a lot of our campuses are not well equipped or have not historically been well equipped to address the needs and the special kinds of concerns that students from historically marginalized backgrounds are bringing in. So to say like, "Oh, we can say whatever we want and, you know, all viewpoints should be welcomed in." that's also i think a little bit risky because we are risking the potential of exposing students to really hateful hateful ideas and so figuring out how to design communities that allow for discomfort and challenge but also are being mindful that that discomfort and challenge are not shared shared perfectly evenly across all all students that's not easy this is hard work absolutely to me the that intention of wanting to take care of each other is so good and so pure. And so we have to figure out how to do that while at the same time, creating spaces where learning can really thrive.
0: Hmm. There's a lot of truth to that. It's, it's not easy work. And I'm so glad that an organization like yours exists to try to do some of that work, because there's a real need for it. And clearly from your research, you're seeing that it, it's not always being met. <laughs> What, why does it matter
1: that it's not being met? Why does it matter that we're not really just rocking, <laughs> rocking these spaces where ideas can come together and new knowledge can be created together? When I think about my students, if I'm lucky, I, I get them on campus for four years, maybe five years, and then they're going off to be parents and policymakers and scientists and innovators and teachers and business people I want them to have the skill sets and the kind of, again, those habits of heart and mind to engage the complexity that's out there so that they can go do amazing things. And so, so the idea of why does it matter? Why do we need to get this right? It's not only does our democracy depend on it because they're going off to be citizens, but our future generations depend on it. Our economic livelihood depends on it. Our creativity, our innovation, all those sorts of things matter and I think are at stake here.
0: I took a negotiation course a few years ago and I've learned so much from it because I think we are primed to think about negotiating as I want X, you want Y. We're either going to meet somewhere in the middle or if I win, if I win the negotiation, I'm getting all of X and you're either not getting all of Y or you know, Y doesn't matter. In studying the psychology of human relationships, what kind of or advice can you offer in terms of having discussions where the outcome is not, I want X or I want Y, but is, is something else?
1: Yeah. Finding that overlap or the, the yes and. So it, it turns out that one of my favorite theoretical perspectives from the psychology of close relationships is called the self-expansion perspective. And the model says that when we enter into a close relationship, we come to take on the identities, perspectives, and resources of the other person. And so there's this lovely, simple Venn diagram of two pairs of circles. And the measurement tool shows these two pairs of circles getting increasingly close. And then you ask people, which pair of circles best describes their relationship? And a lot of people show this overlap that through relating, I can actually come to see the world through another person's eyes. That perspective is now, is now mine to use and to deploy as, as I see fit. It doesn't mean that that person has convinced me to to believe what they believe, but they've offered me a lens. It's almost like I think sometimes about the secret decoding glasses like they sell at the spy museum where you look at the red text with some blue stuff scattered in but you can't possibly make sense of it but then you put on the blue lens and you can see what the message was we're all bringing different frameworks different lenses to how we interpret the world our understanding of what counts as a crisis what concerns us the solutions we're going to bring to bear on our problem and how cool is it if we can actually lens switch and frame switch and do it in a way that makes the world a better place
0: Hmm. i like that I'm thinking a little bit about some waves of protests surrounding universities and colleges inviting generally conservative speakers, not not always, but you know, the Ben Shapiro's kind of of the world and the the protests that have either shut those kind of speaker engagements down. You know, what kind of advice do you have for students or universities that are trying to move beyond that and have a range of people come to their campuses?
1: When it comes to uh, somebody who does come to campus, who you think is going to say something you disagree uh, with, give them a chance to say it. So actually go and attend and listen. And then absolutely use your right of protest. Um, Don't disrupt the speech. Don't make it so other people can't hear, but engage with the speaker, challenge the ideas in the Q&A, go out and stage a counter protest, offer some other programming that other people might want to go to afterward and whatnot. I think that generates dialogue and understanding. And then for college administrators, one of the big pieces of advice here is make this a priority. Don't wait until there's been a big blow up on your campus, but be proactive about it. Talk about the role of open inquiry as it ties to your mission, your history, your particular values and strengths. Be public about that you value this, that engaging ideas, although hard, is core to why your institution exists and make the case early and often even though when it's hard, we stand on the side of of learning. As
0: we start to close, I'd love to ask you what you love most about your work and the flip side of that, what you think is the most challenging or or difficult looking forward? I'll start with the latter. To me, the hardest thing is that this is
1: incredibly difficult work, that there there are no one-size-fits-all answers. There are nuances and considerations and a lot of a lot of complexities. So trying to understand that, trying to engage with as many people as possible to really welcome in as many different perspectives as possible. So to really walk the walk, it takes effort. So that's hard. In terms of the the thing that I find most exciting about this work is, you know, I've spent a lot of years in the academy. I had the absolute dream job at Harvey Mudd. Um, These were amazing students, amazing colleagues. And I've left that to come be part of this, this thing that I think, cuts across all of higher education, all of all of American democracy and society, which is thinking about how we can think together. And the idea that through this work at Heterodox Academy, I might be able to play a role in that and, and making sure that we're riding the ship as it were. That's, it's an incredible honor to be a part of that.
0: It really is encouraging work. And it um, I'm, I'm reminded actually of another college anecdote that starts out kind of sad and ends on a yeah. high note. I had a professor who was an adjunct who was at a fairly high level in one of, uh, one of the agencies. And she was a brilliant woman and had lived around the world. And we hit it off and had many good discussions in the classroom. She had assumed that I was a Democrat because she liked me. And, and I mean, truly in her, in her words, because I said to her, I, I said, I'm sorry, but I, I actually, that's not quite, quite accurate. And she was shocked. I mean, she just was absolutely shocked. She couldn't believe it. And she was a little embarrassed. And I said, please don't be embarrassed. I think it was a good exercise for both of us because she found herself and she she shared this later. She found herself truly surprised or excited about the fact that she'd connected with someone with a different viewpoint from her. Um, And and we continued to have a a good relationship. So I think that, you know, don't judge a book by its cover. Now, I love that story too. And this notion that
1: Who are we surrounding ourselves and who are we investing the time in to get to know and to understand and how do we make that decision? Um, Because obviously, time and resources and energy of connection, they're themselves limited resources. And in terms of deepening our own understanding of the world, I personally also like to to invest in the people who don't share the exact same worldview as I do and and finding them out and intentionally seeking out experiences um, that will challenge me.
0: On that note, the last question we ask everybody on Sanity is what are you most optimistic about right now?
1: I am optimistic about the fact that there are 2,600 faculty and administrators who've signed on to this mission and who are very public and engaged. And that even though, you know, there's some evidence that things aren't great on every college campus, I see tons of evidence that things are looking up. So whether it's, you know, the members or the clever ideas that people are coming up with about how to engage these topics in their classrooms, uh, on their campuses. I'm, I'm reminded there's a, in one of Clinton's inaugural addresses, he said something like, there's nothing wrong with America that can't be cured by what's right with America. And I feel that way. So to turn that phrase for the Academy, I don't think there's anything wrong with the, the Academy that can't be fixed by what's right with the Academy. We've got bright people, good thinkers, passionate hearts. We put those together. Um, we're going we're to be able to, to do this. And I welcome anybody who's interested in, in joining us. So please go to heterodoxacademy.org, sign up for our newsletter, peruse our blog. And if you're a professor or an administrator
0: or a staff member, consider joining us that's a great quote. I'm going to have to look that that one up. It's a good one. Yeah. I use it a lot. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Audrey.